Welcome to The Fix Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Robeck. Each week on our show, we invite a special guest to share their knowledge on health, wellness, and better daily habits so you can have the life you deserve. Let's get started. Welcome back, Fix Family. Today we have Coach Doug Collins on our show. He is a four-time NBA All-Star. He was also part of the Olympic team during the controversy with Russia back in the 70s. And he's an All-American. And I'm fortunate to call him friend. I was referred to him by Tyler Mayer at Desert Highlands. He's a fitness director there as well as an amazing strength coach that also helps Doug Uh, on his journey to recovery from chronic pain due to all the injuries he sustained in the NBA, being that workhorse that he was, where he would leave it all on the court and currently now leaving it all in life. And today we're going to talk about his journey through the NBA, moving into coaching without ever being an assistant coach, and then moving into broadcasting and mentorship. Uh, It's an honor to call him a friend. He's helped me a ton myself on my journey through life uh, by simply listening to me and To be very transparent, I didn't even realize I was being coached. And next thing you know, I'm picking up his principles and bettering my life as a result. Coach, welcome to the show. Uh, Sean, it's a privilege uh, for me to be here with you today. Um, Over the last year, you've become a very important person in my life. And so for us to be able to sit down and talk about something that's very important to both of us is is an honor for me. Thank you. It was, uh, you know, when Tyler referred you to me from Desert Highlands. Um, I didn't know what I was getting into. I had no idea. I was asked to help uh, a very special person in Tyler's life and was honored. And when you came, um, I had no idea where our relationship would go. And it started off as a a, a process of treating to help you, uh, to get you better and to help you feel better. And what it really turned into is a coaching moment. And for me, to learn a lot from you over the years and to not share it with our listeners, I think is irresponsible. And so that's why I'm very happy that you're on today. Well, Sean, you and I've talked about this many a time and I, you've heard me say, we don't ever get to where we want to go alone. Right. We have to have somebody help us. And uh, whether it's been me as a student or as an athlete, as a broadcaster, as a coach, as a player, um, that's what I've had to do. I've learned to trust people who are really great at what they do to help me get to where I want to go. And you and I have spoken a lot about that. And you and I now have an incredibly trusting relationship because when I first went in to see you, I was a patient right. and now we're friends. That's right. And that friendship has, it's changed my life and the friend and, and it's changed my life in a way that some of my views on life and my relationships, um, could have been better. And my approach to working with humans could have been better. And you've, you shared a light with me and it's, it's helped me so much in my life and how I, um, how I actually handle certain situations. And I tell people this because what, when it was, was first off was a doctor patient relationship turned into a friendship, like you said, and I would go home being like, I was just coached by one of the best coaches in the world. <laughs> and I'm like, how is this happening? And so our interactions on, a, on when we would come in for care was it really evolved into um, transforming my views on life and how I approach life. And I want to thank you for that. Well, no, Sean, uh, again, I, I'm thankful that uh, I've had that opportunity because you are in the prime of your life and your career. Um, I wish I could go back uh, as a younger player, as a younger broadcaster, coach, or whatever, 
and maybe do things better. Uh, it's all trial and error. Uh, you learn, and then hopefully there's a, there's a great saying that, that if you want to find wisdom, you find it at the feet of an elderly person. And, you know, I'm going to be 70 years old here now, so I've seen and done most everything in the sport, and I've seen greatness, and I've seen talented people fail, uh, and there's usually a reason. There's usually a, a correlation, what goes into that or whatever. But, you know, Sean, when I came in there to see you, uh, I've had two knee replacements. I had two artificial hips and three-level back fusion that I just had. And I was about three months post-op, and I came in there, you started working on me. And every time I left, you were soaking wet with sweat. <laughs> and I realized what you were putting into me right. to get me better. And it's one of the things I, I try to tell uh, the young players with the Chicago Bulls. I'm an advisor with them. When I have a chance to be there in this COVID situation, I haven't had a chance to be around much. But, you know, those people who are treating you and working with you, connect with them. Yeah. You know, you know, get off your phone, you know, whatever. Find out who they are. What, how did they get to where they are? as they're treating you and the, the energy, you know, I don't think people realize the energy that you're pouring out on a daily basis. When people come in to see you, it's not, you're just putting your hands on somebody, right. your hands, but you're putting your heart and soul. And that's, that's why we're friends because those are the kinds of people that I love people who love what they're doing, people who give everything that they have and people who are willing to continue to learn as they continue to grow. And that to me is what life is all about. And I believe that God has put me in a position right now that if I can do that at this stage of my life, uh, then I think I'm, I'm serving a purpose. You are serving a purpose. And uh, I would say a, a core value of yours and it's selflessness. You give everything, whether it be on the court coaching or to your family and friends, it's like you, you put everybody first and, uh, and it's a truly a selfless uh, relationship with this world. Well, you know, I've learned uh, <clears throat> sometimes uh, maybe I care too much mm -hmm. and I get my heart broken a little bit, but I would rather do that than hold back. Um, I think people that have a tendency to hold on to a little piece of themselves because they're afraid they're going to get hurt. Uh, in life, you have to be vulnerable yeah. uh, to the right people. Um, and when you get your heart broken, you have to learn from it. And like I say, when I look at my body, all these scars tell a story. That's right. There's a story in my life and where I have gone from that, whether it be uh, an injury that took me from my career to going to being a broadcaster, yeah. then to being a head coach in Chicago when I'm 35, 36 years old, when I'd never ever been a head coach before, uh, to then being fired on multiple occasions. Um, so I've sort of lived it all. But uh, the things that last, uh, Sean, are the relationships that you build. Uh, these patients that are going to come back to you, these, these people who are in your wellness, uh, that they're going to see that you're going to change their life. And they're going to come back and say, thank you, but I want you to always understand your rewards are going to come later. <laughs> That's what we say about coaching and teaching. Your rewards don't come immediately unless you hold up the trophy. But your rewards come later when you can look back and you can just relive all these different parts and have some player come up to you and say, hey, coach, you know, thank you for, for helping me. Thank you for helping me 
prolonged my career. Thank you for teaching me about what it is to be a pro. Right. Uh, thank you for being a mentor as I'm learning how to broadcast. I look mm-hmm. at Reggie Miller on television, Steve Kerr, some of my dear friends who got into broadcasting and uh, we worked at Turner together and uh, Reggie Miller coming out and spending a day with me and, and, and just talking about broadcasting and uh, our relation goes back to him. I tried to recruit him out of high school to come to Arizona state when I was coaching at Arizona state. And then 20 plus years later, we're working together, and then I'm going to his premiere of his ESPN thing in Indianapolis. And it's all I started to recruit him. We became friends. And even though he went to UCLA, um, we competed against each other when I was coaching, and then we were on the same team in broadcasting. And that, that, that to me, is what life is all about, the, the people right. that, that you share it with. Thank you. And uh, you, know, you, know, you were a first-round pick in 73. Uh, you didn't get there on your own. Nope. There were people that coached you. Who were these people that got you to that point? Well, it was great. We came walking in Hub 1111 <laughs> today, yep. and uh, they had put together this beautiful video of me playing at Illinois State. And I stopped there, and I, I started watching. And it took me back to that moment where I could run. I was quick. I could jump. I could play. You know, and I'm just saying, like, I used to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but Sean, it's, I'm a product of coaches and teachers. Um, I grew up in a very small community in Benton, Illinois, a town of about 7,000 people. We had a high school coach there, Rich Heron, who became a legend. Um, I, I want to think in a 30-year period of time that he coached there, he coached well over 60 Division I players in a high school of 700. And in our community, we never had any black black players, you know, we played them against them our conference, but we never had any in our community. And so he was a guy that, you know, I, I wanted to, every word he said, I just absorbed and I worked so hard. I, I was not a, uh, a guy that was born with a ton of talent. Uh, Sean, I, I worked my tail off and, um, I didn't even start for my high school team when I was a junior. I was a seventh man on my high school team. And one year later, I get a scholarship to go to Illinois State. I got the first scholarship, full-ride scholarship ever given at Illinois State. Um, So I went from Rich Heron to Illinois State. The man who recruited me there was a man named Dr. James Colley, who was one of the finest gentlemen you would ever meet. Well, when I played in college, you had to play freshman basketball. So I played my freshman year. And in between my freshman and sophomore year, uh, Coach Colley got multiple sclerosis and had to retire. So our athletic director, Milt Weisbecker, who became a second father to me, you're going to hear this over and over, but he became a second father to me, hired the first black coach in Division I basketball, Will Robinson, Mm -hmm. to come to Illinois State in a small community in the Midwest in the early seventies, which was an incredibly courageous thing to do. Right. And I met coach Robinson. I had three years to play. And he said, you know, he called me champ. He never knew. He never called me by my name. He called me champ. And he says, champ, if you listen to me, I'll get you to where you want to go. And from that moment, I listened to him right. and he got me to where I wanted to go. But can I tell you something? It wasn't easy. And I, I would like to tell people who are watching and everything like that, if you don't leave the gym, if you don't live the fitness, if you don't lead the, the wellness program some days where you're cursing the guy who's got you on this, then you're not being pushed to the max. And I left many a day 
you know, mumbling under my breath at my high school coach about how hard it was, my college coach about how hard it was. And then I look back and think about, wow, I'm so thankful that they pushed me to the limits uh, to get every drop out of me, of my talent, so that when I took my sneakers off, there was nothing left. There was nothing left. I had nothing left to give. I, I, I'd broken my feet, I'd, my knees and my hips, they were gone. Right. And so I walked away from it at an early age. I was at the peak of my career. I just made four all-star teams. When I went to Philadelphia, they drafted me. They were 9-73, and 73, the worst team in the history of the NBA. Right. And four years later, we batted Julia Serving, who everybody knows as Dr. J, George McGinnis, myself. We were three all-stars. And we played Portland in the NBA Finals. We lost in six games, but we went from the worst team in the history of the game to four years later being in the finals. I got injured in 81, had to quit. In 83, they won the championship. So I didn't get the ring, but I felt a part of, of it changing, the culture and of winning. And that's sort of my story, uh, Sean. I always say that um, if I ever write a book, I know the name of the book, and I'll never write it because I'm not going to, you know, expose people. That's what people want to hear, dirt, and I would never do that. Yeah. But the name of my book was Never a Champion, But Always a Winner. Got it. Love it. And I've never worn or I've never held the trophy. I don't have any championship rings. Uh, but I have the most incredible experiences. A young kid who didn't start for his high school team at age 16, if you'd have said, would you take 48 seconds in the NBA? I would say, please. Yeah. And Sean, I'm in my 48th year. Right. And, and it's all because of these coaches, these men, these teachers who came into my life and wanted to make me better. They saw something in me. Sean, when you're dealing with people and you're seeing someone, you, you, you were saying, who can they become? Yeah. Like if we get the nutrition right, if we get the fitness right, Give us a chance to see really the life that you want to live and how good it can really be. Because see, Sean, I, I was able for a long, long time to eat horribly. Mm-hmm. And the reason I ate wait, is because I, I could exercise like crazy. And that exercise could maybe trump some bad nutrition for a while. Right. I can't do that. No. I can't do that anymore. I had a young lady a long time ago tell me nutrition trumps exercise. And I'm now 70 and I finally believe it. <laughs> I'm glad that you, you've learned that and I'm glad you're open to it. Uh, you and I are going on this wellness journey together and uh, it, it's an honor to go through it with you. And I think that it's, 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 an eye, it's an eye-opening to realize that you beat yourself up so much throughout the years, Coach. I mean, you left everything on the court. If, you know, For the listeners, go on YouTube and just watch how Coach Collins played. Yeah. He left everything on the court and he's suffering for it today. And, you know, he talks a lot about sacrifice, discipline, but most importantly, having fun. Yeah. And, um, you know, the second title for your book, I would say, would be Pain, Perseverance, and Leadership. Well, thank, <laughs> thanks, Sean. And, and, and the, the one thing that inspires me is I know your story. And see, if, if I didn't take the time to know you, if I just went in and laid on the table and let you cup me, scrape me, massage me, whatever all you're going to do, ARP wave. We've done it all. Spinal decompression. Right. Done everything. Yep. Now it's nutrition. Right. But I know your story. I know of the horrific injury and accident that you had. That's right. And so I see you 
I see your fitness. But what I also see is I know you're still in pain, but when you walk in to Fit Body, you bring a joy and an energy to what you're doing. Nobody knows that. And so I think it's important for people to know, you know, that, that when you find out a person's story, it makes it so much easier for you to lock arms with that person in this battle that you're facing as you're moving forward. Because my battle now is not to run up and down a court. Right. I have five grandchildren. And my, my, my goal is to live an active life with those kids as long as I can. You're, um, you've, you mentioned it before. Never let people see you hurt. Right. And I think what you do and, and um, if you're okay with me saying it on, on air, I, I don't, I don't think your family knows how much you suffer right. at times. And it's, and uh, it's our job as leaders at point to make sure that this isn't something that um, we want to, we want to give back to make sure that these people don't suffer like we currently suffer. Right. And I've never asked you, I never asked you once to do anything that I haven't done. Right. And that's why we're going through a program together to make sure we heal ourselves from within. And so it can be a partnership and, and, and to learn from one another. And that's what we've done throughout our relationship. It's been quite remarkable. Well, you know, as we got to know each other, um, when I speak for leadership uh, and when people ask me to come in as a leader, uh, the first thing I always talk about is trust and truth. Um, the two words, the two dynamic words that are going to decide really what kind of leader you're going to be. And Sean, you and I have talked about this. You can't speak the truth to someone until you develop a level of trust. And how do you develop a level of trust? Well, I come in there five days a week to see you. And every day you're the same. Every day I see what you're preaching to me. I see what you're living. I hear your words. You live your words. And so when you trust somebody, then you can start speaking the truth. It's like, okay, coach, you know, this is where you are right now, and, and uh, this is where you need to go, and this is what you need to be doing. But, you know, at the end of the, do end of the day, there's other things in your life you're going to have to change. You're going to have to. And so as I develop more of a trust that we can speak the truth to one another, and it's not just the physical truth. It's, it's when I come in one day and I'm sitting there and you say, Coach, how are you feeling? That I can emotionally tell you I'm not feeling very well that day. Right. That I can let you know. That, that I can be vulnerable. Like, Sean, I don't feel good today. Mm -hmm. this, this current's running through my body. I'm feeling this electricity. I don't feel great. Got a headache. But we're going to get our business done today. We're going to do this so we can feel better. And, and so there's more than just the physical that goes with the trust and the truth. You have the emotional trust That's right. in that person so that now you get all areas connected. So, so now that, that wellness, the health, the fitness, they're a, they're a big puzzle that all fits. Right. But if you don't have that level of trust and truth, and, and I always say about trust, it's something that's earned in drops and lost in buckets. So you and I could be working together for five months. And if you got out of character and broke a level of trust with me, now it's going to be hard for me to follow you. Mm -hmm. And that's why with leaders, be aware that people are watching everything you do. I always tell young people, it's not fair, but you're being evaluated every moment you're in public. Yep. 
And so just be aware of your event. So if it's a young person who wants to get the MBA or a high school kid who wants to get to college, get that scholarship, I'm not watching just how you play. Yeah. How do you react with your teammates? What are you like on the bench when things aren't going your way? You know, are, do you lift? Do you lift others? Or are you an energy vampire? Mm-hmm. Are you one of these guys that you're awesome when things are going well? But, you know, you just drag the life out of everybody when things aren't going well. All this goes hand in hand with whether I want you on my team or not. Because things aren't always going to be well. They're not always going to be great. And we're going to have to be able to get through those periods of time because we trust one another. And you have to invest time in trusting people. It it takes time to learn about people. One thing that makes you different at Fixed Body Group, we, we take care of a lot of elite athletes and professional athletes. The difference is there will be some athletes that will sit on and will be on a table for 30 minutes to an hour and they'll be on their phone their entire time. You dove into my life from day one. You wanted to learn about everything that I was up against my story, my injuries, how I overcame them, my life with my wife, my twin brother, my father. And we dove into everything and it was, uh, you learned about me and it, and you helped manifest and create this trust in this relationship where it's a massive giving back and forth. Well, you know, Sean, you know, for you to be great at your job, you know, I, I wanted you to also be great with Kristen. I wanted you to be great with your twin brother. I wanted you to be great with your father because all these relationships play into how we live our lives. And if we, if we have trauma, if we have areas that aren't good, I I had a lot of dysfunction growing up as a child. Mm -hmm. When, when I uh, left to go to Illinois state, I was 18 years old. My father had bought me a 1966 Plymouth sport fury cost about 1200 bucks. And I got a scholarship and gave me a car to drive up to school. And I put my, uh, all my belongings in the car. And as I backed up and drove away, I did not know, but the moment I got out of the driveway, my mom and dad split up. And so when I went up to college, I I pulled in and I pulled in front of the dorm and I, Wilkins Hall, 10th floor, 1016 Wilkins, looked up to 10th floor. I looked over at Horton Fieldhouse, said, this is where I'm going to spend all my time. But then I looked at all the kids' parents were moving there in their dorm. And I was there by myself. And I said, you know what? No excuses. I had my cry. No excuses. I'm going to be the best player I can be. And I'm going to be the best athlete I can be. And nothing's going to hold me back. I'm not going to, you know, we can live our lives with excuses. Well, I just don't think I can eat like that. Well, you can if you want to be better, if you want to feel better. You know, I I don't know if I can get up and do 45 minutes of exercise. Well, Well, you can. It might not be, you know, there, there are days where you say like, you know, I really don't want to get on this exercise bike for the next 60 minutes, but I'm going to, because I, I know what it's going to bring. That's right. And so, you know, I get back to the dysfunction aspect of it. And one of the things I always talk to players about in the NBA is the good Lord now has blessed you with an incredible professional life. You're making a ton of money. And if there were dysfunction in your life, you're given the opportunity to break the chain of dysfunction, yeah. break that chain. And so Sean, you know, if, if you were having a tough time with your dad, you and I might talk about a way you could maybe talk to him yeah. or your brother, your twin brother, 
because it just so happens that my son married an identical twin. So I understand the dynamics of identical twins. And so I just think when all those things are in the right place, yep. that when you walk in fixed body, there's going to be a great chance you're going to be in the right place. And if something's wrong there, it's going to carry over. It just will. You can't, you can't get away from it. No. And you went to Illinois state. Um, you went there and you said, I'm going to conquer this game. And correct me if I'm wrong. Is the arena named after you currently? It is. I, uh, you know, I never, I told you when I went there, it was, uh, actually the arena is not named, but the floor is. But when I went there, uh, Illinois state was not a division one program. So while I was there, we became D one coach Robinson became the first black coach in division one basketball. I became the number one pick in the draft. And here you are a, a, a white player, number one pick in the draft by a black coach, which had never been done before. Um, my Jersey hangs in the rafters. And if you ever want to get online, uh, there's a statue in front of the arena of me and coach Robinson. And it's really a statue of love. Yeah. How two men in such diverse cultures could come together and fall in love with each other and have some success. And so as that statue is up there, it's a, if you look at it, I'm behind him, he's kneeling, and my hand is reaching out on his shoulder. I'm touching him. I'm touching him because he touched me. And looking back on your time with Coach Robinson, can, is, are there a few things that you remember that you carry on and you pass on to the younger generation based on what he taught you? A great lesson. Uh, Every day we had to run 50 laps around the gym, four, chore, uh, four chairs in, in each corner that our managers would sit in. And he had his cup of coffee. He would watch us run. And 50 laps before you ever start practice. And his thing always was you go around the chair and don't ever finish last. Okay, don't ever finish last. And then after we would did that, we would go and there was a rope that went to the top of the gym and we climbed the rope with your teammates around it, cheering for you, you climb the rope, touch the top of the gym. And we boxed every day for three minutes. And then he told us for 15 minutes, we would sit on the floor and he would say, I'm going to talk about something in life that's important that I think you should know. It could be a topic of interest, whatever. On one particular day, he spoke about shortcuts in life. But the day that he chose to do this, he didn't come down to watch us run. So he had the managers get us together to do our running. We climbed the rope. We boxed. He came in with his cup of coffee. He sat down and he said, um, today's topic is on shortcuts in life. I just want to ask you guys, without me watching, did you run around the chairs or did you cut in front of them? And we all dropped our head and he said, practice is over today. He said, because those shortcuts in life under pressure will get you beat and mm. all you do. So to this day, if I go out and walk somewhere, I pick out a spot, I'm going to pull, I'm going to walk around the pole, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to touch it. 
align me means you're either in or you're out. Right. You're in or you're out. And everything I do, I tell people, start behind the line, you touch the line. You run sprints, you touch the line. If you don't, we all run over. This line means something. And to this day, yeah. my, I used to drive my wife crazy. If we had walk, I'd say, we're going to walk up. And she goes, I, you know, and I said, just do it. Just go. It won't hurt. It just, that's the way I'm wired. Right. One day lesson, shortcuts in life. So all you people looking out there, if they're one thing to don't take shortcuts because they will end up costing you more in the, in the end than, than you think they will. I love it. I mean, you're a four-time all-star, all-American, uh, drafted and, and, and an Olympian. Yes. And, you know, we didn't talk about this. I've never spoken to you about this, and, uh, but there's some controversy in the Olympics that year. Are you yeah. okay talking about it? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's a, it's a, I mean, you get on the internet if you want to watch it, it's three seconds to glory. It's 72, uh, uh, NBA, uh, excuse me, uh, 72 Olympic team. We were in Munich, Germany. Uh, we got to the gold medal game. We were playing Russia. Uh, we were down the entire game, uh, with about five minutes to go, we start pressing and we were down one with about 20 seconds to go. Uh, the shot clock was turned off. Russia did not have to shoot the ball. Uh, for some reason, they went in to take a shot, and, and one of our players blocked the ball to the corner. Uh, the Russian player uh, retrieved it in the corner, and I was at the top of the circle. There was a big Russian at a big center, and so I tried to get in an area sort of behind him where the guy in the corner could not see me and the guy that I was playing. He tried to throw the pass to the guy. I darted in front of it. I knocked it away. We're down one. I didn't know how much time was on the clock. So I, I was in a dead-ass sprint to get to that rim to score, to win the game for us. Yeah. And as I started to go up, this uh, Russian player came on, and he low-bridged me. He just leaned over and low-bridged me, flipped me. Over on back. So I, I missed a shot. Um, I was knocked into the stanchion. My head uh, hit the stanchion. I, I busted my, I had my eye, I had a big knot on my eye, had fallen on my wrist. And I was knocked unconscious for a few seconds. So I got up. There was three seconds to go in the game. We were down one for a gold medal. And we had never, ever lost a game. Right. And so I always talk about the power of words. And my coach was Coach Iba, 70-something years old, tough, tough, tough coach. Yeah. His assistant was uh, Don Haskins from Texas, El Paso. And if everybody wants to ever watch a great a show on TV, it's called Glory Road. Don Haskins coached UTEP. It was Texas Western back then in 1966. They won the national championship. They beat Pat Riley and Kentucky. And you know what was significant about that game? It's the first time ever five black guys started a game. They started against Kentucky, all these All-Americans. Okay. They won the game. He was my assistant. And Johnny Bach, who became a mentor to me, and to this day, um, I'm so thankful that he became an assistant for me when I was at my jobs in, in, in uh, the NBA. But so I walked to the line, the coaches were gathered. I was trying to gather myself. You watch the tape. I'm sort of messing with my wrist. I got a knot on my eye. 
And I hear the coaches go, somebody, coach, you're going to have to find somebody to shoot these free throws. And Coach Ibis said, if Doug's can walk, he's shooting them. And, man, to this day, the hair still stands up on my arm, you yeah. know. Walked to the line, made my first one, tied the game. As I was getting ready to shoot the second one, if you listen real quote, your horn sounds, and the Russians were trying to get a timeout. Well, you couldn't get the, the timeout at that time. I made the free throw. We went up one, three seconds to go. They threw the ball into the guy I was guarding. I thought if I can make him turn one time, we win. The game is over. Because you couldn't take a timeout and move the ball like you can in the NBA. So with one second to go, whistle blew, they stopped the game. And we had no reason, no reason why. And so we were right in front of the Russian bench. The coaches were up on their feet. It was, you know, they, there should have been a technical. But they stopped the game one second. And they gave them the ball out of bounds. They threw the ball in. We intercepted it. We won the gold medal. And then a guy from Great, uh, Great Britain came down, William Jones from FIBA. So that wasn't fair. You could put three more seconds back on the clock. And uh, we're going to have to do it again. Well, I, I would relate it to, so a lot of people probably just saw when Gonzaga just beat UCLA, yeah. after Jalen Suggs hit that shot, he ran over and jumped over on the scares table, the joy, his team. You know, yeah. that's basically the celebration we had. Yeah. And then we were told, no, you got to go back out there. You couldn't have a timeout. We couldn't discuss it. They just pushed it back out there. They threw a long pass. Guy stepped over the line. And we had a guy in front of the, the, the Russian, Alexander Belloff. The ball went right over his fingertips. Kevin Joyce was behind him. They sort of banged into each other. Kevin fell back. And Belloff laid the ball in at the buzzer, and we lost our gold medal. And so that was sort of my first uh, taste of heartache in sports that I had a gold medal taken away from me and my teammates. And it would have been, interestingly enough, I think back on this day, Sean, and I think about pressure. And I always say pressure is a privilege. Um, if you're under pressure, that means there are things expected of you. Or otherwise, you wouldn't be under pressure. And so I always tell people, if you're pressured, then that's great. So what beats pressure? Preparation. Are you prepared? And if you watch that free throw... I shot that free throw like I did. I had, a I had a hoop in my backyard as a kid. And every day I would go out and play Jerry West one-on-one -on -one and imagine and dream. Jerry West, I beat, you, I beat him every day in my backyard. Some days if I missed a shot, I got fouled. I go to the line, I have to make a free throw. But, Sean, I had a routine. Find the nail, which is a nail on every free throw line, which tells you it's a center. I put my right foot there, put my left foot slightly behind it. Three dribbles, spin, shoot. Shot a free throw like that ever since I was 10 years old. That's what I did when I shot those free throws. I didn't think about what happened if I missed. And it's one thing I learned later about when I coached Michael Jordan, and I'm not putting myself in this category at all. But coaching great players, they never fear consequences. They never think, what if I miss? Right. They don't think like that. Right. Great surgeons don't go in and think, what if I screw up this surgery? You know, when I come in to see you, you're not going like, what if I screw this up today? Well, I'm, that's not what you think about. You, you know, that's not, what you, that's not the way your mind works. And I just think about what would have happened in my life if I missed those two free throws? What would my life have been like today? What, what would I have felt the regret that I would have felt 
letting my teammates and my coaches and my country down. Yeah. And I thank God that uh, I didn't have to feel that. Uh, the, the, to take risk and not to be, not to fear failure. I've heard you say this a few times. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing that you've accomplished in life is being, having a stellar career in the MBA and then shifting into coaching without ever being an assistant coach and just taking the reins and saying, I'm going to be a head coach now. How does one transition from being that athlete going into coaching? Because we all know that there's been amazing players out there that were not that great of coaches. Yeah. How was that transition for well, you? Well, I think I go back to, okay, if I'm going to do this, who's going to be with me to help me? And so the assistants I kept were Johnny Bach. I hired him to come in, who was my, Assistant, when we get back to trust, right? Right. I so trusted this man. I said, will you help me? Because he'd been a coach for 30 plus years. So uh, Tex Winter, who was the uh, author of the triangle offense that the Bulls were were so uh, famous for that they ran with Phil Jackson when they won their six championships. He was with me. He had 40 plus years of experience. So I said, I'm going to do it. And then I did not know how great Michael Jordan was, or was going to be until I got to be with them on a daily basis. And for all of you out there, if you want to be great, you have to be great every day. Greatness is every day. It's a weight. It's a, it's a, can you carry that? Michael won every sprint. We won every drill. He was never a good three-point shooter, so what did he do? He stayed after practice. He grabbed John Paxson, Craig Hodges, Trent Tucker, the best three-point. And every day, he challenged himself to those guys every day. And he couldn't beat them initially. But later on in Michael Jordan's career, he was in the three-point shooting competition. He would always take whatever might be a weakness and make it a strength. But, you know, we have a tendency to run away from things we're not good at and only want to compete in those things we are good at. Mm-hmm. So that's why we tell young people, don't specialize in a sport. Play them all. Learn to be. I played on my sophomore football team, Sean. I didn't get in for one play. But I was there supporting my teammates. And those guys who played in football sat on the bench when I played basketball and watched me play. Right. I learned to be a teammate when I wasn't one of the better players. Well, if you, all you ever do is do the things that you're good at, do you realize how you're limiting your life? Plus being coached by other coaches, being on the team with other players. Yeah. But people are afraid to fail. You know, Sean, it's almost now with young people, there used to be the fear of death, the fear of public speaking. Now, all of a sudden, fear of failure is, is cre- like, and now what's happening is parents are coming in and they're no longer helicopter parents hovering. They're now snowplow parents where they are blazing, they're blasting the road. So their kids got this imp, this, this runway that you can't fail. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I always say, and pardon my English, do you want to get your ass kicked when you're 12 or do you want to get it when 26? Because it's coming. Mm-hmm. So when do you want to start learning? I got my tail kicked young and I grew from it. I learned from it. How do I get better? That's why you go into film sessions with athletes and you walk through films and, Hey, we turn the ball over. How can we do better with our turnovers? But there, there's a weakness that we're trying to get better. And uh, it's the one thing that scares me about our young people today is I, I, I want them to get away from that fear of failure. You know, take that class. that's going to, 
that's going to challenge you. You know, you might not get an A in it, but, you know, you, you, you might take a class that, that, you know, Spanish one and two that now you're going to use later on in your life and stuff. So, you know, I'm preaching a little bit, but I'm just, I'm just a big advocate of don't be a selective competitor, man. If you got comp- competition in your heart, like, cause we're sitting here right now, I want to do a damn good podcast. <laughs> I'm not sitting here. I don't want to do some half-assed thing where people are watching going like, well, I wouldn't listen to that guy. Right. I want them to feel like that guy's got some things that, I, that maybe I can take in my life and I can be better. Right. And you've been four decades in the league. You've been in many locker rooms. Can you share how the locker rooms on the seventies are a bit different than what the locker rooms are now? Well, I'll give you a little example. When I got drafted in 73, we had a head coach, an assistant coach, and a trainer. That's that's what we had. I became a senior advisor to the Chicago Bulls four years ago. And and on top of that, we practiced at a high school. We didn't even have our own practice. Or we practiced at St. Joe's College. We we didn't have a locker room. You'd wear your stuff in sweats because it was cold there in Philly in the winter. You would get finished. You'd get in your car, drive home, take your shower whatever, one coach, one assistant, one trainer. Now you walk into the Bulls, they have a multi-million dollar, gorgeous practice facility. You walk in, the first thing you do is there's a huge kitchen, a beautiful lounge, widescreen TVs, chefs in there cook, cooking healthy food. Right. So, so you walk in, you say, I, can I make me a couple eggs today? Can I have whatever? They're, they're, they're giving you your food. Whatever. Now you walk in to incredible locker room, sauna, steam, beautiful locker rooms, wood, handling, gorgeous, beautiful, long. You walk out, you walk into the, uh, now go to back to practice. So you walk back a chiropractor, a massage therapist, a nutritionist, a strength and conditioning, an assistant strength and conditioning, a sports management uh, a somebody who uh, monitors when you put the heart rates on the players to see how hard they're working. Uh, you now as a head coach, you have all these different people that are working with these athletes. It's not just you as a coach. They have now after practice, they go to developmental coaches who are your assistant coaches. I mean, it is a massive, massive undertaking. And as a coach, now you have to manage that. You know, Sean, if you're my strength and conditioning guy, and I got my nutritionist, Josh is my nutritionist and whatever. We all got to be working together right. to, so we can help get these athletes. So, so I think I was talking, talking to you earlier, Sean, before we got on the podcast. Selfishly as a coach, the better an athlete gets, the more money he makes, the better our team is. We win. And the more I uh, succeed because of that. So my success is going to be generated a lot by how I help develop these players that are playing to bring the best out of them. And you heard me say before, Sean, get the right players on the bus, getting sent them in the right seats. Yep. You're the, you're the bus. You're in that front row. Guys are getting on the, on the bus. Are they sitting in the right seats? Not only. And, and sometimes you got super talented guys right. and you move them around and they don't fit. And as talented as they are, you got to get them off the bus because they might go somewhere and do well. But for you, it's just not going to work. That's right. You recommended the book uh, Training Camp. Today. Yes. Love that book. Everybody in my, every one of my staff in the office have read that book. It and- is, uh, it is a playbook of life. Uh, a story about a athlete football who doesn't get drafted. He's going to training camp. Um, 
he befriends this one coach, Coach Ken. And the last exhibition game, he runs for two touchdowns and hurts his ankle severely to where he cannot practice again until the teams are being cut. And every single day, he's got this anxiety and worry. Did I do enough? Did I show them enough to make the team? And Coach Ken comes in and he said, if you trust me, he said, we'll get through this period of time together. And he said, I'll give you the playbook tomorrow. Brings the playbook in. It has nothing to do with X and O's. It's the playbook of life. And it's, if you get a chance, it's every speech that I do revolves around the playbook of life. And, and, and we can all take every little piece of that because it fits in every bit of our life and, and put it to use no matter what we're doing. And this young player did that. And I'm not going to spoil the book, but if you can read it, John Gordon, he's a terrific author. And another one, a great book that I really love by his is called The Energy Bus. Yes, I read that. And, well. and, um, and it's got, and, and all these are stories, they're fictional stories, but they're the truth. Yeah. And as you read them, you can identify with them. They're easy reads. He's got about 11 or 12 books out now. I've read all of them. I'm doing a little bit of a, of a plug here for him. I just think he's brilliant in what he does with his leadership. And he's now, uh, one of the most respected people going around the country, speaking to the football teams. He's good friends with Dabo Sweeney and Clemson and all. And uh, I'm a big fan. Yeah. The uh, your your approach to uh, how you were on the court and how Jordan was on the court. You, you suffered so many injuries in your career, and and, and uh, uh, your last year in the league was 81, correct? Mm -hmm. And and it was uh, cut short due to injury. Yes. Uh, and. Um, and we can have a whole other show about all all the all, all which you've suffered by leaving it on the court. Uh, Jordan had a similar injury that yeah. you had, yes. and uh, you were able to relate to that and try to help. What was that like? Try to try to share that experience. <laughs> the first time I met Ma Michael Jordan was in Doctor uh, uh, Heffern's office. He was the team doctor for the Bulls. Awesome, awesome guy. And Michael had broken his tarsal navicular that year, and if anybody knows about that injury, it's a terrible, terrible injury because that bone gets very little blood flow and it's hard to heal. Well, Michael came down in Golden State. I think he played 18 games, or maybe not even that many. He came down flat-footed, and, and it just split his tarsal navicular. And so he's going to be out the whole year, and he's just chomping at the bit to play. So it heals to the point where late in the season he can come, come, come back and play. He plays in the playoffs, and he plays against the Celtics, and that's where Michael had 63-1 game, whatever. The Bulls got beat, uh, but Michael was spectacular. Yeah. So I was hired for the Bulls. He had a follow-up X-ray on his foot. So I met him at the doctor's office. Doctor put the X-ray up on, on, the, uh, on the machine like he can do, and he said, Michael, I want you to see, see the shadowing there. That's where the bone is healing. See how it's doing? It's healing nicely. There's still some more healing. The bone's being laid down or whatever. So I'm sitting there. So I said to Michael, I said, Michael, I said, you know, I had that same injury, you know, be really, really careful. And he looked at me and he said, I want to ask you a question. He said, they tried to keep me from playing this year. They tried to hold me back. I wanted to play. Are you going to hold me back? Or are you going to let me play? He said, because that's my foot and my foot's different from your foot. And he said, I love to play and I'm going to play. 
And I said, I got you. And he said, I want to tell you, I want to give you a little piece of advice. He said, if you have a thoroughbred and a thoroughbred, you know the way a thoroughbred runs. If you ever hold him back, eventually he'll stop running. Don't ever hold the thoroughbred back. And I said, I got you. And from that moment, I grew with him. I never had the chance to hold a trophy with him. We had some incredible moments. Um, last dance, when he spoke of our relationship, it meant the world to me because Michael is the greatest to ever play. And to earn his respect and be respected by him, uh, I feel honored by that. And the trust you two have and, yes. and, the, and, and the way that you could speak to one another. Well, just and, to follow that up a little yeah. bit, Sean, not to interrupt you, That's but, right. uh, you know, when he came to back to play in Washington, uh, he asked me if I'd come back to be the coach. So I guess that would show you the trust factor that, you know, would you come and be with me? I saw what you did here in Chicago to help build us. Would you come help build me in Washington? So yep. I think that speaks a lot. It does. And to be able to, it wasn't always roses. No, you, no, no. Right. And no, no, to be no, able man. to argue with one another and to have that relationship and come back and love one another is that's, that's all about trust. I, I got to tell you a great story. This podcast is probably going way, way too long. That's so uh, I'm sorry about that. I'm Let's a storyteller. We had practice one day and Michael was in a pissy mood and, you know, he was edgy. To, you know, I could just tell he, he was, he was going to, he was going to get through it, but he just wasn't himself. So I stacked the teams against him in our scrimmage. Because it's the only way I could I could get him to really have to play is to stack the teams so they make it so hard for him to try to win because all he was about was winning. Right. So whatever team he's on, he was going to win. So on this particular day, he thought I was cheating on the score. So he got a little heated and a little testy. Now you're cheating, and I said, you know, Michael, you know, just leave. You don't want to be here a day. Just go. So he had his bag at the end of the gym. He was walking out and I said something to him that I think sort of touched the nerve a little bit. I'm not going to share what it was, but I said something to him that was really important to him. Real, real important. Grabbed his ball, uh, bag. He walked out of the gym. So came back the next day, we're practicing and you could just feel there was tension. And so how am I going to break this tension? Because I know Michael's not going to come to me and you know, what do I say to him? So we had these glass doors that the media used to stand out with their cameras and stuff. And when players leave, that's when they do their interviews. So I was standing out there doing an interview and Michael came by and they were asking me about Michael and being out of practice. So he walked by and I said, Mike, would you come over here? And I put my arms around him and I said, let me show you guys how, what I feel about Michael. And I gave him a kiss and we walked away and that little kiss on the cheek, that was, that was it. Yeah. That's all that needed to be done. And that nothing had to be said. When you look back on uh, your career and all the injuries that you've sustained, do you ever think back and regret um, giving everything that you gave and, and then and the consequences that you've suffered as a result of that effort? No, I, uh, you know, people said to me, you know, you played, you know, every possession, like it was the last every yeah. night. I said, yeah, that's, that's the way I was taught. He said, you ever think if you didn't do that, that you could have lasted longer? And I said, I could have lasted longer, but I would have never been the player. Yeah. And so I would rather be the player I, I could be in a shorter period of time than ever become the player that I might have by holding something back. And so I never hold anything back. I'm not going to hold anything back on this podcast. I'm not going to hold anything back 
when I go out and do my, I, I had a thing when I had my hips replaced, I had both done it at the same time. The doctor said, if you can take it. I'll, I, and I said, I do. I want them both done at the same time. I banked six uh, pints of my own blood. He put back into me. I left the hospital and I stuck around for a month for, uh, in Chicago to get therapy. I was leaving in, I was living in Arizona and my wife took me to a track, high school track every day. And I walked a while with my, I walked a mile every day with my crutches supporting me. I walked a mile, uh, a week after my, uh, hips, double hip replacement. And I made her time me with a watch every day. And if I didn't walk faster the day that I did the day before I did it again, that's who I am. Yep. And, um, it shows it shows with your commitment coming into the office every day to get yourself better. And when something doesn't make sense, you question it and you want to know why, why am I doing this? What's going to happen? How are we going to get there? What's it going to take? And you're going to do it. I've never worked with somebody like you before. The commitment to getting yourself better isn't about you feeling better. It's about you being there for your family and for your grandchildren. And you're doing all of this to make sure you can have that quality of life and give those kids what they deserve. And they deserve a grandfather that can be with them. And that's what you're working for. Well, Sean, that's why I love you and your team, you know, because you're giving me an opportunity to do that. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's amazing, uh, how we've grown in our friendship. You know, I walk in there and I almost feel like it's my home. Yeah. You know, sometimes I walk in and you're treating other people. I go, Oh, you know, I better get out of there. He's still treating some other people because I just sort of feel like it's sort of my place now. You know, I've got, uh, I spent hours and hours and hours there and, uh, but you know, there, the, you know, uh, Stephen Covey wrote a great book about the seven habits of highly effective people. And the first is begin with the end in mind. And so when I come in with you, Sean, I want to know, okay, Sean, tell me where I can get. So I want to know where I can get first. Yeah. And then how do we get there? You know, now what are the steps? But you know, if you don't know where you're going, like I had to get here today to do this podcast. I didn't know where I was going. So I, I had the GPS put an end. So here's where I'm going. Yep. So I'm beginning with the end in mind. How do I get there? And uh, that's, that to me is life. It's, and be proactive, not reactive. I, I want to make things happen. I don't want to react to something that's already happened, especially as a leader. If you're reacting to something that's happened, you're behind. Yeah. Right. And my goal was, can I stay one step ahead of these players every day? Can I stay, can I be prepared when they ask me a question? I got to have the answer. You know, if I don't have that answer, I'm exposed. Yep. You know, I'm standing there in front of the team. They ask me a question. Well, coach says no. And if I don't, I said, well, let's find out the answer together so we can get there together. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of being on a team, leading a team, cheering for a team. Uh, I've always had a team, you know, basketball that, that, that I signed for you that's up in that office. Yeah. When I look at that basketball, that's not a game. That's my life. That gave me everything I have in my life. Yeah. It gave me a scholarship. It got me to Olympics. It got me to the NBA. It helped me be a coach. It helped me be an advisor. And I think back on all of the friends I have made in that journey along the way or whatever, but that ball, and, and John Thompson, uh, who was one of the great, great coaches, he just died recently, he used to have a ball in his office, and there was no air in it. And he used to ask his players, what are you going to do when you lose eight pounds of air? 
that's in that ball and it no longer bounces, what are you going to do? Yeah. And I just think it's a great representative. And, and if you look at it, my, my daughter played in college. She went to Lehigh as a freshman. She was an MVP of the Patriot league. Her team won the Patriot league tournament and, and made it to the NCAA for the first time ever in the history of school. My son coached at Duke, played at Duke with Coach K, played in the Final Four, won two championships as a coach, was with the gold medal winning teams. He has two gold medals. He has world championship. He's decorated. My son is a champion. Yeah. He went to Northwestern. They had never, ever been to the NCAA tournament 100-plus years. I want to go pave my own trail. Four years after he got there, they made the NCAA tournament. That's why I have this tattoo right there. It's representative, that tattoo right there. That's the ace of spades for Johnny Bach. That was his kill card. That's what we gave to every player who was the best player that particular night. We gave out the ace of spades. The N is representative of Northwestern, and the PTR is pound the rock. We got that from the San Antonio Spurs. Pound the rock. Keep pounding. Keep pounding. If you do it right, one of these days, that thing's going to split. Love it. And do you have the tenacity to hang with it, to make it happen, or are you going to lay it down and that next person come up, bam, and split it? You are one pound away from splitting the rock. And so that's who my children are, and that's what I'm proud of. You've been asked this, uh, to come in and coach four different teams, Chicago, Philly, Detroit, uh, and Washington. Yes. Um, every team you were asked to coach for was a losing team. Mm -hmm. And every team you've you've created success every single one. And then you were let go. Mm -hmm. And um, one team had massive victory. Six championships. <laughs> six championships yeah, after. Bulls won six championships, yes. And so to take a product um, and develop it um, and those, that experience and, 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 over, and typically it would be a three-year period that you would do this. In. Yes. Um, how, do you get, how do you lead a team and, and, and get that culture to be able to create a winning environment? Well, you know, Sean, it would be like, uh, I would say to you, Sean, um, as you started with Fit Body and you walked in and this is what you had, what could you change? What personally could you change? You might not be able to change immediately where you're at or the equipment you have or whatever. You might not be able to change that. Right. But what can you change? Pat Riley helped me with this. He sent me down as young coach to this day. I owe so much to Pat Riley. He said, figure out what you can change. So I thought, I know I can, we can be as well conditioned as any team in the league. We could be as well prepared as any team in the league. And the third thing that I think really was the key, I always rewarded my competitors. Yeah. If you were a competitor, you would find a role for me. Um, when I went to Detroit, they had won 28 games. Uh, Grant Hill was a young player. Alan Houston was a young player. Lindsey Hunter, Joe Dumars was an older player on that team. Um, and he'd been with the bad boys. And it had just totally eroded. And now they asked me to come in. And it, and it was really hard because the bad boys, Lambeer, Mahorn, Joe D, Isaiah Thomas, that persona, we're going to knock you around. We're going to fight you. We're going to, you know, you're, you're, you know, that's the team I coached against when I was in Chicago trying to beat that team. Right. So I went to Detroit and I drafted a guy named Don Reed 
out of Georgetown with the 50th pick in the draft. He was the last pick in the draft. Everybody thinks that was a throwaway pick. I drafted him because I watched him at the Chicago draft camp. He had the most fouls, tough, played with energy, ran 6'8", undersized, probably averaged five points a game. He came in to Detroit. He made our team. We started out, Sean. We were 8-10. and 10. We had a game in the, uh, in, in the Madison Square Garden. And I kid Patrick all the time, Patrick Ewing, but he used to move on all of his screens. So Patrick was sitting all, all these illegal screens. We were down about 17. We were in a timeout. And I said, who's going to punish Patrick Ewing one time for setting that screen? So we had a guy named Michael Curry who was in on a 10-day contract who's like a son to me now. He said, Coach, I'll do it. So he went out. They ran that play. Michael ran through Patrick Ewing. We almost had a brawl. And we came from behind. Don Reed was on the fourth. Theo Ratliff, who was a young player that I drafted, we almost came from behind and won the game. I got on the plane that night, and the coaches said, what did you learn from tonight? And I said, I'll tell you tomorrow practice. I put Don Reed in the starting lineup. Energy, toughness, competitiveness. We went on a run and ended up winning 18 more games that year than they did the year before. That guy, he wasn't Grant Hill. Wasn't Alan Houston, wasn't Lindsey Hunter, wasn't Joe D. But Don Reed, that guy, that little piece of competitiveness changed our whole culture. Yeah. And that's what it's about. When you go, the, my, everybody talks about the Miami Heat culture. And it's Pat Riley and it's Mickey Harrison, the owner, and it's Eric Spolstra. And when you go there, there's no question about this is what we do, this is how we do it. And if you can't do it, you can't be here. They've divided a certain kind of culture. And that's what I always try to do. Can we bring, and then you have to have really good players, man. Right. I, I had some young guys, Grand Hill, Allen Houston, you know, in Philly, I had Drew Holiday and Andre Gadala and, uh, you know, Elton Brand and some terrific young players. You, you just got to get them the feel of winning. Once they get that feel, they don't want to let that thing go. And one thing I wish for you that you had, was a support system around you, whether it be chiropractors, physical therapists, nutritionists, like we spoke about coming back full circle, um, your body could have persevered. Yes. Potentially. What do you wish you could have had? And what do you think would have happened if you had services like this? Well, uh, you know, when I had my hips rep uh, replaced, uh, the, the doctor, uh, uh, he, he's such a tremendous uh, a doctor, uh, Dr. Finn, uh, he invents his own hips and, and knees and all, whatever. But he x-rayed my hips, and he said uh, they were malformed, almost like they were displaced. So instead of coming up with a little cone, they were, they were like this. And he said to me, he said, did, were you fat as a kid, or did you have a huge growth spurt? And I said, well, I had a huge growth spurt. And he said, well, that's sort of why your hips are like that. He said, you know, you had such tight hips, that all that torque and tension, your broken feet, your torn ACLs were all related to your hips. Right. And I would think back, well, if I had all the things these players had today, the flexibility that I could have learned different ways to move, you know, to maybe take some of the stress, you know, I had none of that. Right. And so my career would have definitely been much better had I had what players had today. And that's why I always try to tell these guys, like, take advantage of what these people are bringing. I mean, these people are going to help make you money. 
You're going to be a better player. I mean, the average salary in the NBA now is almost like $10 million a year. If you're an average player, you're going to make $10 million. I mean, you work, make last three years, you've made $30 million. Think about the wealth that you have for your family now to, to create a life for your family and for your grandchildren. And, you know, generational wealth, these guys, that they are creating generations of wealth for their grandkids and their great-grandchildren that they might not be around to see. Right. And the equipment. Yes. I, I look at pictures of you back in the seventies and you're wearing these, uh, low top oh. converse. <laughs> like, I'm like, I was possible the way that you played and, and what you, how you would stop and start in the speed was incredible with those shoes. Yeah. You put those shoes on now. It, you can barely <laughs> walk down the street with those shoes on. It's so funny, Sean, you say that because my girl, Katie girl who works at body fit, who's your right arm. Mm. Uh, she works with me every day. She came in the other day and, and her shoes she had, that she normally wears something, she's gotten them dirty, whatever. So she had these Chuck Taylor Converse's on. Yeah. And she was getting ready to put me on the ARP wave machine. I'm laying in. I said, Katie, girl, I used to play in those <laughs> shoes. I said, I wouldn't even walk to my car in those things right now. No. Just flat. But, hey, man, they were called Chuck Taylor's Limousines of the Feet. I got my first pair when I was like in the seventh grade, Sean. $6.99. My parents splurged to get me a pair of Chuck Taylors. I played in the Olympics. Look at the Olympics. Chuck, yeah. they were the converse. They were the shoe of the Olympics. Right. I mean, I think back, you know, if I had these shoes today, these players today, they go to Nike or wherever they're, uh, uh, you know, these these shoes that rep, that they uh, rep. And they go in, they take moles of their feet, and they, they have them specifically. And, you know, Michael Jordan used to wear one pair of shoes every game. Yeah. He wore one pair. He had a new pair of shoes every day. And I, I got to tell you a funny uh, story about that, Sean. I told you I'm a storyteller. My, mm -hmm. my son was the ball boy. And he, uh, he was sitting there next to Michael one day, and Michael – threw Chris uh, his shoes, uh, and uh, Chris put them in his bag. And, and he goes, thanks, you, Michael. And he said, I wasn't giving you those shoes. I was giving you to lace them up for me. So, <laughs> so Chris takes them out, he laces them up. What he said, I'll give them to you after the game is yeah. over. So after the game, he signed them, and Chris has got them at his house somewhere now. But he wore a different pair uh, and, and superstitious. You talk about preparation. He wore North Carolina uh, practice shorts under his uh, Chicago game shorts. I mean, you talk about a man who operated by the clock, who did everything. I mean, MJ, you could set your watch by him. You you bring that up, and uh, and I, from what I, didn't it evolve into that? Like, let's you know, we talk about nutrition and and your <laughs> journey and how you would fly on commercial flights. You yeah. would you would basically have a few hours of sleep. You sleep on the plane. You would have basically nothing to eat. We'll at get times. a hot dog or something at the at the airport. Right. That next day as you're flying out because we didn't have those charter flights. So we stayed overnight. So after a game back and then some, they didn't have room service like the, a lot of the hotels back in the early 70s. So we'd have to try to find a place to eat after the game. You get up at 530 the next day because you had to take the first flight out because you might be playing at a back to back. Mm. You might be flying home. You might be flying to another city. You're stealing sleep. You're, you know, you're can you get a, you know, egg or bacon or a hot dog at the airport? You get on, you grab a bag of peanuts, right. sleep three hours, go to the hospital, uh, go to the uh, hotel, try to sleep again. And, and, you know, when I coached the bulls that we didn't have charter flight, we, we flew commercially. So here you are right now, you're walking through the airport, getting on a plane. Now, can you imagine Michael Jordan getting on an airplane today <laughs> right now? I mean, they, they wouldn't be able to get the plane off the ground. People no. would be going nuts. Right. Right. And for him, I, you, you told me a story once where he would, you know, he'd made a, a 
forty pack of chicken nuggets. Oh, and get fifty points. They get fifty points oh, the next then, day. Yeah, but then I saw him evolve. Right. I saw him train. I saw he lift. You know the strength he got to combat the pistons. But then I saw his also his nutrition. Mm-hmm. And you know he would stay. We'd stay at certain hotels, and he wanted his meal delivered at a certain time. He got the same meal before every game. He was dressed, suit and tie. He would take his jacket. He would lay it over the chair. He would eat his meal, grab his jacket, walk out, and get on the bus to go to the game. He he had a uh, regimented approach to every game. He'd get in the locker room. You could see him certain ways. And then if we time click, you go get his ankles taped. He'd start getting dressed, get the stat sheet, start looking at things, do his preparation. That's the way he prepared. He was so smart. Man, I'd say people... He was the most fundamentally sound player in the game, and he was a basketball savant. And you throw that in with his competitive mill and his talent, and you have Michael Jordan. Kobe Bryant was in that same mold. A lot of people didn't realize how much Kobe talked to Michael. They tried to make them rivals. And then when Kobe passed and Michael spoke at Kobe's, uh, not funeral, but his celebration of life, and Michael crying, talking about Kobe being a little brother, passing that on. Yeah. Sean, it's what you're doing. You're passing what you have on to the people who work with you and for you so that they can do for people what you're doing for me. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the greatness that you're bringing to people. And there's nobody better than what they're doing than what you do. Thanks, Coach. Yeah, we, you know, you and I, in all transparency, we worked together for a year. And I'll be very honest to say, the results that we've gotten to date aren't what we were hoping to nope. get. And we talk about it and we navigate and we strategize and we figure out solutions knowing that we're, there's a never, a no, never say die attitude. And we've, we, we ignored nutrition and wellness for a while, hoping that working in the structure of your body after all of your surgeries and doing chiropractic, physical therapy, using Sue Falzoni for dry needling and her expertise, which is ridiculous. How how brilliant she is. She's insane. And so to have that team and working, but still struggling and not getting the symptomatic results that we were looking for. And then saying, it's time to fix the inside. It's time to look at nutrition, wellness, look at your hormones, detoxification of your body, making sure that your fitness routine is right for you. And then having that coach and mentor to make sure that there's accountability and that you understand what the future goal is. And I believe that uh, in the past, your diet (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's awful. Was awful. It was awful. And it was, uh, it, but you know, as long as I get on that scale and I was hanging around there, whatever, uh, you know, I was okay. Uh, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I worked my butt off so I could eat bad. That's right. Is what I did. I, I worked like crazy so I could eat bad so I could just destroy it all and go back and start again the next day. Yeah. It's like a bit of a balancing act, but not allowing your body to optimize and heal itself. Right. You get to a balance point, but your body's staying at a stable point of de- chronic degeneration. Yes. And now we're going down a path. We're six weeks in, seven weeks in, actually. We're in our detoxification phase, you and I both together. Yep. And it's the now we're making efforts of healing the body through a six month program from within. So these nerves can calm down and have the nutrients and, and have the, everything it needs to be able to, to revisit itself and re-engage, restore, recover and heal. But, yeah. but you think about this, Sean, how did we get to this point? Well, we, we got to this point by you came into my life. Sue Falsoni came into my life, Katie, Ty, uh, Jordan, who works with me, you know, I, I've, I've got a lady that comes to my house, gives me a two hour massage every Sunday, yep. like what I'm devoting. But in walking in there and, and realizing that there is still not what I want it to be. So what's the next step? Nutrition, 
But, but Sean, if I, if I didn't trust you, I would say, you know what, you know, Sean, I, I really don't want to do that. I don't want to take that away out of my life. And, mm-hmm. and then I realized, you know, you're really not taking anything away. You're learning to bring the things into your life that really are good. And isn't that what we do with all of our life? We let friends in that are our friends and the other ones out, they sort of scoot away after a while and your, your little circle becomes smaller. And, uh, but you know, I, uh, I trusted you and, uh, I see you and I know you hurt mm-hmm. and, you know, I've come into your office on many a day and teared up because I, I, Sean, I, I, it ain't working, man. I ain't getting better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, go home and sit in my chair and ain't getting better and say, I got to, I got to do everything I can. And this is the last step, you know, it's a last step for me. It is. Well, it's a last step. And uh, what's great about what we do and the coaching that we, you being a coach, you're coaching people from the path that they know you'll always be there for them. And coach, you know, that we'll always be there for you. I do know that. And uh, so I said, you, you know, you don't get anywhere alone. That never, you don't get, uh, I'm strong with my faith, and every day I know I'm not alone. I have the Lord's love in my heart. And so I have uh, friends, family, uh, everything a man would want. And now I want my health. Yeah. Coach, what are you most proud of that you've accomplished? My family. Yeah. By far. Not even close. Yeah. Not even close. My family. And uh, who they are, uh, the way they've lived their life. Uh, my daughter, uh, the mother and wife that she is, uh, my son, the husband and father that he is, and my wife, who is the rock. Yeah. You know, uh, I said, if you want to know why our family is where it is today, it's my wife. You know, all the days I was gone, um, she was there getting them to their sports, to school, to church taking care of them. I never went, I never went to bed ever on the road wondering if my family was taken care of because my wife was always there for them. It's a great team. Coach, I can't thank you enough for being on our show today. Friends forever, buddy. You got it. Friends forever. Thanks again. You got it. Hey everyone. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you did, please like, and subscribe to stay tuned. See you next week on another episode of the fix podcast.